This is a quick disclaimer. Although the wise investor is trying to educate people on personal finance, what we talk about on the show is not actually financial advice for your personal and unique situation. Before trying to do anything with your money, always consult a professional. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School, presented by the Wise Investor Team. Making Canadians more financially literate, one post at a time. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School. Today, we have a very special guest on the show, Fatima Zaidi. Thank you for coming on today. Thank Uh, you for having me, Anthony. I appreciate it. She's the co-founder and CEO at Quill the world's first one-stop marketplace and agency where podcasters can find vetted expert freelancers who will save them time, improve their podcast quality, and help grow their audience. Fatima comes with over a decade of experience in scaling startups. She's also the owner of the Listening Conference, which is being held in LA that supports brands moving into podcasting. As a member of the National Speakers Bureau, Fatima has spoken at various events around the world on media trends, the importance of creating a diverse and inclusive culture, leading her to keynote on some of the world's biggest stages with like Gary Vee, Arlene Dickinson, and soon to be Richard Branson. In addition to being a commentator for BNN Bloomberg on tech trends, she's a frequent contributor to publications, including the Globe and Mail, Huffington Post. Over the past few years, she's won, won two top 30 under 30 awards and has been named Young Professional of the Year by Notable Life and one of Flair Magazine's Top 100 Women. Huh. That is a long bio there for somebody of your age, Fatima. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, Um, like I said, Anthony, thanks for having me. I've uh, been tuning into some of your previous episodes and, you know, your team has interviewed some really great guests. So excited to be a part of that roster. Before we get started, a word from our sponsors. King Street Media does all the post-production of the podcast, streaming, analytics, editing, and coordinating all the guests such as yourself. And they also do all of our behind the scenes marketing for the podcast. If you have any questions about how you could scale your business using digital marketing, you can look them up at King Street Media or at kingstreetmedia.ca. Little plug there for our, uh, for our sponsors. I love the plugs and um, here's another shameless one. Really impressed with the work you guys are doing at King Street Media using you for our conference listen in and would have gotten to work with you a lot closer if COVID hasn't happened. So excited to resume our work as soon as this is all over. So listening conference was supposed to happen when this year? It was supposed to be in June and then we pushed it to October thinking the pandemic would probably only last a you know, couple of months and then we pushed it to March and now we're like, you know what, we're just going to stop guessing because realistically nobody knows when a vaccine is going to be readily available and just given how the election trends are looking right now, it's not looking too good. So, you know, <laughs> I think just across the board, there's a lot of uncertainty. So we're hoping we can make it happen in 2021. It's a real shame. Like a lot of businesses did adapt to COVID and the quarantine, Mm -hmm. right? Like they were able to adapt, pivot, whatever. But there's a lot of businesses that just possibly can't, you know, such as conferences or such as restaurants and stuff. And it's just an unfortunate predicament right now. It really is. You know, we were really fortunate because the conference is not a core part of our business. It was more so um, just an event where we wanted to build stronger relationships and support value to a lot of the brands that we work with. So we are really lucky and fortunate just given the industry we're in and the fact that we're a tech company. But, you know, 
I feel really bad for a lot of the small businesses out there. And I think the silver lining is at least we're all in this together. That's the truth. That's the truth. We need more leaders like that with that kind of mindset. Today's actually the last day where they're polling all of the American election votes. So we don't have word on who's going to win yet, but we will find out. Today's November 4th, 2020. Well, it's looking good. Biden just um, took Michigan home. So, you know, mm. fingers crossed, but it's looking better than it was last night. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. I, I just checked it like a couple hours ago, but that's good. I feel like every Canadian wants uh, a Democrat to win or like the majority of Canadians, you know? I mean, I don't know. We voted in Stephen Harper not to get too political. So um, I, I don't know if I believe with that, believe in that statement, but you know what? I, I don't want to compare Harper to Trump, obviously, but we have a lot <laughs> less to be smug about. We've made some questionable choices in the past. First thing I wanted to talk to you about is you're a great communicator both sales, public speaking, and that's really important as a skill set in life. And I, I, I will always remember this statistic that I uh, heard in my, early on in my career because I worked in financial planning. So they were analyzing the distribution of millionaires in Canada. Okay, that's people who have a million dollars of net worth outside of their primary residence. Okay. There was about 400,000 millionaires in Canada. Of the 400,000, 50% of them are doctors. We'll take that segment out. So there's 200,000 people that are millionaires in Canada that aren't doctors, right? 1% of them are employees. 3% of them are executives. So senior level C-suite or SVP type executives. 7 to 8% of them are salespeople or commission-based employees or contractors. And then 89% of them are entrepreneurs. It's a very interesting uh, distribution there. Okay. Obviously being a doctor is the best way be to become a millionaire. It's obviously a difficult route. And then next up is an entrepreneur or salesperson. So I wanted to ask you what made you first interested or aware that sales and communication is an important task to double down on, or at least train and get good at. All great questions and very, I would say, unique questions compared to what I'm usually asked. It's, I find it really interesting that you said 80 something percent are entrepreneurs and only 8% are salespeople. So if I'm both an entrepreneur and a salesperson, am I just like upping my, up, upping my odds? Like, well, is that I how it works? A, I had a follow-up question to you and I was going to ask, do you think that being a good salesperson is a prerequisite for being a good entrepreneur? Okay, so let me answer your first question first, which, you know, I think is an important question. I, I didn't go into this industry thinking I wanted to necessarily make a lot of money, which I would be lying if I said I didn't and I wasn't motivated by money. I think I've said in a lot of interviews, and I definitely stand true to, to that even today is that I am very, very motivated by making money and financial security and I don't know if a part of that is because I grew up in the Middle East and, and moved here and I didn't necessarily have financial security for a large part of my life or, you know, I think everyone is motivated differently and there is some sort of a taboo or stigma by coming out and saying that money is important or, you know, you are someone who's driven and fueled by making a lot of money. But I think as a salesperson, if that's not your answer, then you probably need a true calling and making money isn't just about, you know, financial security. It's also about contributing to a startup or a company's bottom line. And so 
you know, two things I realized very early on. I was not good at the red tape bureaucratic structure of a corporate organization. I started my career off in corporate where I worked for large conglomerates like Thomson Reuters. And I was very unhappy and definitely didn't thrive in that setting. So very early on, I knew that if I wasn't going to be an entrepreneur, I at least wanted to work in an environment where I could directly see the fruits of my labor contributing to bottom line. And, you know, also very early on realized that cash flow is king. Doesn't matter how great your marketing skills are. Doesn't matter how great your product or your idea is. If you can't get sell it and if you can't um, scale a company, then you know, it is one of the most important roles and backbones of any company. And so I wanted to sort of become integral to that skill set, knowing that somewhere down the line, I would become an entrepreneur. And to answer your second question, I absolutely think being a good salesperson is so fundamental to the success of an entrepreneur. And what makes a good salesperson like as what that is like the million dollar question what skill set should you possess and it's definitely not something that you're born with it's very much i believe um nurture over nature and i think that the most important takeaway for being a salesperson is the ability to be resilient i know that anyone who's either an entrepreneur or in sales knows that it's an emotional roller coaster. Some days sure. you're on top of the world. Some days you've hit rock bottom. There's constant nose, rejection, door slammed in your face. You have to have thick skins. And I find a lot of people can develop a fear of rejection and that inability to keep putting themselves out there. Good salespeople recognize that it takes way more work getting your ducks in a row than simply commanding them to line up. You have to work tirelessly with purpose. And so, you know, just given my experience as a salesperson, it really trained me well uh, when I made that transition into being an entrepreneur. I was going to ask you this question. Do you think good salespeople are born or grown, right? And Mark had a natural gift for gab. Fatima, were you like naturally good at it or did you work at it? And Mark, what, what do you think when it comes to being natural about it or building it as a skill? I think that it is a skill. I think that it is something that you can nurture and harness over time. And I think that it's like so many other things and just getting your reps in. But then most of all, what a lot of people do is they, they, where they drop off is the, is the ability to be critical of themselves. And uh, one of the biggest things that changed for me over the years and my ability to communicate was a becoming a better listener and really truly understanding what listening and good communication was there. And B uh, this is going to sound funny, but being comfortable enough to talk in the mirror and present uh, and, and review. And when I say talk in the mirror, that's, you know, playing back a video like this and watching how I communicate even a statement like this, um, being critical of that and trying to improve on it for the next time that I do so. So that's how I feel is where people, a lot of people are confused. They think I'm not creative. Well, how much time do you spend every week harnessing your creative ability and your creative side? Same goes for communication. How much time do you spend every week learning how to be a better listener or being critical of the way that you communicate so that you can be more concise and, and deliver a point in fewer words. That's always what it's been about for me. So I, I do think it is nurture over uh, time. And uh, Fatima, how about you? Like, how did you craft that skill? Were you naturally good at it or did you develop it over time? Well, first I want to say, Mark, you definitely are a really good salesperson. I remember when you pitched, pitched me on King Street Media, I walked away feeling very impressed. And very rarely <laughs> do I feel impressed by other salespeople. Usually I have this critical voice in my head saying, here are all of the things that I'm not liking. Um, but yeah, you worked on me. So you definitely <laughs> do have the skills. Um, and to answer your question, Anthony, I would say that 
I, I think there's like innate qualities that make a really good salesperson like resilience. And, you know, oftentimes I get asked this question, like, how did you bring, build a really strong personal brand? And I say, one handshake at a time, like offline tactics have the power of forming stronger relationships. And I've really, really worked on my personal brand as an extension of my sales lead gen pipeline. I think anyone can really understand the technical aspects of being a good salesperson, how to automate your sales process, figuring out the algorithms, how to use and maximize on your CRM tool. Anyone can learn that. But those like basic fundamentals of being proactive, you know, building warm, authentic relationships, being resilient. You know, I don't necessarily think that everybody has that and it's not everyone's cup of tea. And the good news is there's something for everyone. If everyone had the salesperson mentality, it would be a lot harder for people like Mark and I. So <laughs> well said. I love that. I, I love that. that. Absolutely. Okay. So we'll, we'll move on from the whole sales topic here. You're the founder and CEO of Quill. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you recognize that opportunity? Because Quill, relatively speaking to the rest of the world, adopted podcasting pretty early. There was an early adopter to that. What what opportunities did you see there and what made you want to start Quill? You know, I, I, I ran an agency in a former life with Aaron Burry, who was actually one of your previous guests. Yeah, yeah. And one of the biggest requests that I started seeing towards the last couple of years of being at this agency is people moving, or brands rather, moving aggressively into the podcasting space. And I, I started getting really curious about the process because I find that traditional advertising, like performance marketing, which is an area that you guys specialize in, it it's great for if you're looking to mass target people. And, you know, every day we use so many brands like Amazon and McDonald's and Google and Facebook, but do we have an emotional connection to these brands? Not really. We don't really stop to think about what the story is behind the scenes, what it took to build that company, you know, what the staff and the executive team are like, what's going on behind the scenes day to day. And I found podcasting to be really interesting because it's like watching your favorite Netflix show, but really um, talking directly to the influencer or host of a company where you can develop a more lawyer connect, loyal connection with, with the company and brand. And so using that mindset, I started like following studies like Midroll study where they interviewed millions of podcast consumers, people like myself, who said that after listening to a podcast episode, they purchased a product or service. 61% of the people they interviewed said they purchased a product or service. Traditional advertising converts at one to 2%. It's very much a volumes game. This was a whole other medium where it wasn't about volume. It was less about the mass number of downloads and more about how close can you develop a connection closely can you develop a connection with the host this host becomes an influencer you end up trusting their product recommendations and just looking at it through a marketing and sales lens i decided to take a risk and productize our services and launched quill which launched as the marketplace it's still a marketplace and then we also have an agency umbrella where we work with full service um we work in a full service capacity with corporate and enterprise teams to start their podcasts. And I would say it definitely was a risk. When we started, I had a lot of people say to me that, you know, podcasting may still be a fad. It, it may sort of fizzle out over time, but I personally believe then, and now I know it's true. In the 1980s, every company had a phone number for their business. In the 90s, it was a website. In the 2000s, it was social media. And I think in the next five to 10 years, every company will either have their own podcast or be advertising on one 
you know, similar to in 2007, if you were on one of the first people on Twitter, like Aaron, by default, you're an influencer today. If today <laughs> you are podcasting, you're going to be an influencer in the next five to 10 years. That's for anybody listening right now. If you've been a long-term listener of my podcast, <laughs> you probably know a lot about me, the way my mind works, the people that I surround myself around, um, how I speak, uh, my values for sure. And I don't have a lot of listeners, like maybe like I get about a hundred unique listens per podcast episode. Some are more, some are less. And, but those people that do know me come up to me and like when I see them at parties and stuff like that, and they say, Hey, I saw your stuff online and made me want to do this, uh, or it changed my life in this way. And that's what keeps me going. But even the whole Gary V model of breaking that this long form content down into micro pieces of content is also a good strategy for companies that are trying to build content at scale as well. Yep. Because thousands of people see the micro content that we put out on a, on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. So it's a good overall strategy. And it's, I guess, what, why do you think the market is going faster towards podcasts and it wasn't like that before? Well, I mean, I think COVID has definitely compounded everything with events and a lot of marketing tactics on hold for sure. But I think it's across the board for all of our clients, it's different reasons. For some of for some, most of our corporate enterprise clients like banks and, and large tech companies like, you know, SHI and Axway, they, for them, it's about feel like it's typically about becoming a thought leader or subject matter expert in whatever industry they're in. Another area or trend that I'm finding is sort of becoming the main impetus for why people want to start podcasts. And I've actually been, as a salesperson behind the scene, tracking results. And the numbers are pretty astounding. So a lot of startups we work with start podcasts as a form of lead gen. So, you know, they have 10 episodes, they pull out their sales prospecting list, which clients or customers do they want to close deals with? And they invite those customers or stakeholders to come be a guest on their show. And just like that, in one hour, you've built a very organic relationship with the CMO or CEO or COO of a, of a company. And where else are you going to get that sort of a, a connection from? Where else are you going to get start building that kind of a organic relationship. I mean, if you're hmm. going to cold email them, you're probably not going to hear back, but this is the way for you to get your foot in the door. And actually I've been tracking this for a lot of our clients who are using it as a sales tool and it's between a 50 to 60% close rate where if you bring on a guest and keep in touch with them and build a relationship with them, you're able to get to the sales close process, which those numbers are really great. And I think fascinating. Yeah, that combined with brand awareness, becoming a thought leader, the fact that the audience of podcasts are typically educated, affluent millennial professionals that account for 80% of the workforce and purchasing power. You're reaching a very specific group of people, new audiences in new places that are global, so you're not constrained by demographics. I could talk about the benefits, and I think brands are finally starting to catch up. I mean, I've been a consumer and adopter since 2014, since Serial launched. But now I think it's finally getting to a point where brands are seeing the ROI. So do you think it's going to, well, I'm not even going to ask you this question, but I was going to say, do you think it's going to be a trend or is it here for the long term? Obviously, yes. Well, what's your thoughts on that? Well, look at the historical data. We have 1.5 million podcasts, um, like 300,000 of those have been added in the last 30 to 60 days. So hmm. I definitely think just based on the stats that we're looking at, it's a medium that's exploding. And 
there's some really great content out there. I get asked all the time, is the industry getting saturated? And I mean, let's compare it to other forms of content. There's 1.5 million podcasts. There's 300 million plus blogs, 1.5 billion websites and 30 million YouTube channels with 500 hours of content being uploaded every minute. If we're comparing podcasting to that, we're still very early in the hype cycle. And everyone consumes content in different ways. For some people, it's visual. For some people, it's written. Uh, you know, personally, for me, it's audio. And I think there's a whole subset of the market that we've sort of been ignoring other than radio, which isn't really narrative storytelling, that now has sort of come to light. So something that I think about often is the difference between like, because podcasts come in different shapes and sizes as well, right? Like some people is just them ranting for, uh, for 30 minutes. Some people it's the whole guest thing, right? Like I enjoy interviewing people from different industries. That's why I have the whole guest interview style. We're going to talk a little bit more of how to's right now for the people watching that are entrepreneurs or looking to start a podcast, but what, when approaching starting your own podcast, what's the difference between the long form like those ones you see that are three hours, two hours long versus some of the shorter ones that are 20, 30 minutes. Because people ask me this often, how long is your podcast? And we started at 15 minutes and now we do an hour. But when you're consulting a brand and starting their own podcast, how, would, how do you guide them through that decision-making on length? So I would say that if you don't have a following... And if you don't already have an existing base of people that you can tap into, starting off with a one hour podcast can be very overwhelming to podcast adopters and consumers. For me, 15 minutes worth of content or even 30 minutes of content is a very low risk, low time investment to subscribe to a show and figure out whether or not the content resonates with me. And oftentimes a trailer isn't enough. And so, you know, of course there's podcasts like How I Built This or Oprah's Super Soul, um, The Rise, which, you know, have a really large and loyal following. And so maybe it's okay to launch with a one hour show. But if you're typically putting out a new podcast and people haven't really started listening to it or you know you're looking for new audiences in new places the shorter the content the higher the chance that somebody's going to start your show and listen all the way through typically i would say the sweet spot is 30 minutes like anything more than 30 minutes i can just right off the bat whenever i'm perusing through itunes and i want to start a show i always if something's longer than 30 minutes either it goes into the back burner or it gets filed for you know, a day, a rainy day when I actually have time to listen to a one hour podcast, which let's face it, not is happen. rare. Not yet. Yeah, it typically never happens. If it's a 15, 20 or 30 minute episode, I can listen to it on my, you know, commute. I can listen to it while I'm at the gym, while I'm walking my dog. It's just true. Yeah. It's I never easier. looked at it that way. Mark, maybe we should take a mental note and experiment with some shorter form uh, episodes. Well, data is king. I'm sure you have previous episodes that are shorter, and then you also have longer episodes that are an hour. Take a look at the retention. Take a look at how many people are listening all the way through to the end. If you notice a big drop off, it's because your content's too long. Let's start from the beginning. Let's say someone's looking to start an indie podcast right now, whether it's from a personal basis or they're a small business owner that wants to experiment with podcasting. What would be the steps that they should take in order to launch that? Well, I guess the salesperson in me would say, if you're looking to launch a podcast, you should go onto the Quill website and hire a freelancer to help you launch the show. But if you're looking to DIY and do it yourself, then um, in terms of equipment, super simple, a Blue Yeti, a Nano would be typically fine. You don't need to go out there and spend five. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. That's all you need. You don't need to spend $500 on the fancy equipment. 
um, you know, as long as you have headphones that have a built-in microphone, you're good to go. In terms of um, pre-production, of course, you have to think about things like episode plans, guided questions that you might want to send to your guests, the type of guests concepting. Um, in terms of cover art, you need a logo for your podcast. So you can either outsource that and hire someone or you can, you know, do it yourself. Um, and then when it comes to recording in terms of platforms, uh, you know, if you're DIYing it, for sure, you can use platforms like Zoom. If you are looking to monetize on your show, though, and bring on a sponsor after maybe your first season, I would highly recommend moving off of a platform like Zoom, which is a conference line, not an audio software tool, and moving towards something like a Zencaster or a CleanFeed or even a Squadcast where it's optimized for sound quality. In terms of editing, of course, like you have the team at King Street media from a music and intro and outro perspective distribution apple spotify in terms of hosting platforms highly recommend simplecast it's the one with the most premium analytics so sponsors are going to be looking for information like who are your demographics where are they tuning in from mm -hmm. uh, what's your retention like downloads unique listeners i find a lot of hosting platforms don't provide that info so you want to make sure you're with something like simplecast okay excellent um so we talked about there, how, so how could people start if they're looking to get help, you know, to go take a look at Quill, talking about platforms to use, distribution, the length of the podcast, very good stuff. Let's talk a little bit more about why. Like, why would a small business out of Toronto want to start a podcast? So Maybe someone that isn't, that isn't B2B because you talked about how it's a good sales tool, right? For building relationships and things like that. But how about someone who's more uh, B2C that's uh, going out for a larger audience? We actually work with a lot of B2C companies too, and it's a great sales tool for B2C. Of course, you know, it's a different strategy where you're not necessarily inviting your customers to be on your show, but it's great for partnerships, for vendors. Um, another Another reason I would say it's so crucial for B2C companies is you really need to stand out from your competition and become a thought leader and subject matter expert in whatever space you're in. And, you know, if you're a benefits company, if you're an expert in cybersecurity, um, what better way to sort of become a thought leader than putting out really great content where you can tap into a global audience. For me, I think this has been my sales mantra. It's about providing value. Uh, someone once gave me some advice and they said the best way to be a salesperson is to not be a salesperson. And I actually really took that to heart. And I, I would say throughout my entire sales career, really focused on providing as much value to people as possible, whether it's through content, whether it's through coffees, informational sessions, throwing events, hosting, speaking, whatever, articles. Um, and I find that is my, my sales pipeline has over time become inbound rather than outbound. Um, and I, it's been a long time. It's taken me a long time to get to that point. But podcasting is sort of similar. It's you're building relationships. You're reaching global audiences. You're becoming a thought leader, increasing your brand awareness. And what you're doing is by default, bring building an inbound pipeline. If you have a podcast on a particular topic, people will start turning to you as the thought leader and expert in that particular industry or space. A hundred percent. When I started out in my career, financial consulting, they used to always say that around the five year mark, people start calling you. If you do it, if you start doing things right, you know, so I, I think being a good salesperson or a good entrepreneur is having that long-term vision as well and grinding it out and doing what you have to do. And then eventually that flip will happen when people do start inbound. 
but branding and building genuine relationships, like you said, are great ways of doing that over the long term. So definitely starting a podcast and posting content consistently will build that credibility and will have people reach out to you. I agree. It's even Most a good definitely. way for it, the way that you described it as well as like having a deep relationship with large corporations. It's a good way to kind of just get behind the facade of the, of the leadership team or the people that work in companies, being able to express that to the consumer. So. Absolutely. You know, one of the examples that I always give is there's so many ice, I'm a huge ice cream consumer, love ice cream, all forms of it. And there's so many different brands out there and I'm not exclusively loyal to any brand out there. I wasn't exclusively loyal to any brand out there, but after I listened to the Ben and Jerry's episode for how I built this and in how I built this, I fell in love with the co-founders and their story and their mission vision behind Ben and Jerry's. And then when the Black Lives Matter movement happened or started, they also released a very, I would say, controversial um, statement supporting the movement, but they really took a stance and they did it through the form of audio content. And after that, I have exclusively been a loyal Ben and Jerry's consumer. I don't let any other brand in the house. I like that is my go-to purchase product now. And I think similarly, they're, you know, converting customers over time. And I think that's what podcasting is going to do to brands. It's you're actually, it's not just going to be a product or service. You're going to start developing some sort of a, a loyal response to whatever stories you're listening to. Love that. Love that. Okay. So let's switch gears a little bit here to the more entrepreneurial side of you. We'll put on our entrepreneurial hats. So you do a lot you're a CEO of a company, right? You have a strong personal brand and you do a lot of PR and, uh, and branding both for the company and yourself. How do you manage your time as a CEO between like working in the business versus working on the business or working on your public speaking stuff or developing the PR of yourself or the company? How do you manage all of that? Do you have a framework or do you just I do. chaotic schedule? Are you a scheduler? I get this question a lot and I would say that, I mean, two things. One, definitely a scheduler, like from seven o'clock in the morning until probably I go to sleep every half an hour is like an incremental time slots where I know exactly what I'm doing, which is, you know, can sound exhausting, but for, for me, I think it's really great because it, it allows me to sort of stay very high functioning and productive, which is just sort of, I think something that you have to be when you're a salesperson as well as an entrepreneur. I mean, the other thing I would say that really keeps me extremely productive and, and helps me manage my time is work-life balance. I am, I, it's like the millennial mindset where I actually don't believe that people need to be promoting the hustle 24 seven mentality that leads to burnout. And unfortunately, I think because there's so many icons out there that we look up to and respect to constantly promote the, you need to work 24 seven and hustle, 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 and life is a race. I think showing up to work tired is like showing up to work drunk. And for me, it's, I'm so intentional about making sure that I sleep eight hours a night, that I'm making time for my friends, my family, and in general, just have like, you know, when I'm 
productive and on the job that I'm like 100% and I can give it and I can go, 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 go until I'm not. And then I'm extremely present. And I think having that balance is extremely important for me. And that's helped me be a better CEO and entrepreneur and something that I used to be terrible at. That is a new lesson I have learned as a new CEO when I decided that I wanted to bring, build a different culture at Quill. I wanted to build an agency and marketplace where we weren't working 24 seven on like other agencies, where we weren't working evenings and weekends and holidays, where we had relationships with our families, friends, and you know, we just weren't burnt out all the time. And I battle, I battle that. I'm currently battling that right now. And uh, if you, if you did battle that before in the past, a lot of entrepreneurs or uh, highly ambitious people that want to get things done, they feel bad about like when they're not doing anything, they're like, well, I should be doing something. I should be always productive. Yeah. How did you overcome that? <laughs> well, I actually find the, the opposite. I find that I'm a better CEO and performing better as someone who has work-life balance. So I don't think of it as not being productive. I actually think of it as being productive by giving myself a mental break, by checking out and disconnecting. I am a much better salesperson and CEO now than I was a few years ago. And I think I attribute a large part of that to the work-life balance because it's helped me to really prioritize. It's helped me to really rein in on the things that are important. And of course, number one, the most important thing for me is sales for my company. Like that is, you know, keeping the lights on, scaling, you know, working our way up to acquisition is my number one priority. But all of these things that I do additionally, like speaking and writing and segments for BNN, like that all leads to a, a sales pipeline that is a very much a long-term play. So even though I'm juggling all of these different things, it's all connected to my one goal. And so I don't necessarily think of it as overtime or you know work. It's more so just all connected. We're all very young entrepreneurs here, especially <laughs> in the greater scheme of like where all the influence and power are still in the older generation. Who do you go to? Do you have like any mentors or how do you kind of develop the wisdom that is imparted by older people onto us? Do you have uh, do you have mentors? You read books? What do you do in order to kind of get some wisdom under your belt? Yes, that's a great question. I definitely have an incredible support system. So my five advisors, um, Aaron is one of them, uh, Michelle Romano, Bruce Croxton, Peter Retaino, and Robin, they're all people that I tap into all the time. They're advisors for Quill, but like they're personal advisors to me now. And I, you know, being an entrepreneur and a CEO can be a really isolating experience. And it's so nice to have sort of your posse that you can tap into every time you're, you know, facing a roadblock. So huge advocate for having people like that in your life. That's why you have an advisory board and a board of directors for that reason. Um, and then on top of that, just like obviously reading is a big part of my life and also podcasts, consuming shows. I find that anytime I'm having a really bad day, which is all a lot as an entrepreneur. Like there's mostly bad days. If you're having six bad days, you'll have one good day that'll fuel you to keep going. But you know, <laughs> people are lying if they say that it's, you know, a breeze. It's definitely as hard as they say it is. Um, I find that like even if I just put on an episode of how I built this, um I I'm instantly motivated and sort of energized knowing that people who have made it have sort of been through the same journey and it's all about iteration and resilience. And so just like, yeah, knowing when you really need to sort of disconnect from what you're doing and tap into resources like that, I think is extremely important. 
I, I listen to audiobooks often, and my favorite audiobooks are the ones where the author narrates it. Because, mm-hmm. like, I was just listening to a Jordan Peterson one, a Grant Cardone one, and a oh, Patrick nice. Bed David one. I love Grant like, Cardone. He's amazing. What a mindset that guy has. But he's just, like, yelling in my ear. <laughs> I feel like he's right in front of me, right? Like, that's a, a great form of mentorship if people are looking to build a mentor team around them. The easiest way is by watching YouTube videos or listening to podcasts or audiobooks. But for those people, like my follow-up question to that, those five advisors that you had there, people are always looking for mentors. How did you build that, those connections with those mentors? How did you find them? Um, and how did, did you like ask them like, hey, can you be my mentor? How does that actually work for the people listening? Uh, I don't think there's necessarily a formula. Don't ask, don't get is one of my other mantras. Um, Erin and I, obviously, we run 88 together. So that was, she's actually my sister's best friend. So, you know, that was sort of a very like in the family connection mm-hmm. um, that we built over time. Uh, Bruce is someone that we actually used to do PR for. So got to know him through that and through that process at 88. And, you know, he's just... I would say to be an advisor or for me to ask you to be an advisor, a lot of things have to line. It's not just for me to tap into your business mind. There's tons of people who are really great at business. It's also just people that you trust, you know, will have your back and genuinely will give you sound advice. And Bruce is definitely one of those people for me. He is one of the most grounded, humble, kindest, I think people that I've ever met. And on top of that, he's brilliant, which is just sort of the icing on the cake. And so you know, I've never ever felt, and these people are so busy and have so much on the go, and I've never felt like I'm, you know, if I tap into them, they've always made time for me immediately. And, you know, accessibility and resourcefulness are two extremely important things. And so I think they're also looking for that in the person that they're looking to mentor. And it needs to be a two-way street. You know, I never ever show up to my advisory calls unprepared. I have an agenda. I'm so respectful of people's time. Even before I knew Erin, my first meeting with her when I was essentially a child, still in the corporate world, I like met with her for coffee and I showed up to our coffee meeting with an agenda with 12 questions so that I wouldn't waste her time. And she gave me a list of to-dos. In our next meeting, I came back and had every single thing done on that list and so I get asked all the time by people can you mentor me can you be an advisor to my company and very quickly I can figure out the people who are actually going to get their shit done and and hold themselves accountable versus the time wasters and tire kickers so if you're gonna Agreed. be looking for those advisors you have to be all of the things on the list that you're looking for a hundred percent it's a it's a two-way street I think it happens organically mm-hmm. and like it's a true friendship usually between like an older person or a younger person, but I have mentors that are my age too, but also it is, it, you have to provide value to them as well. Like you can't just 100%. be like, ask, ask, ask. Like usually my mentors, I bring them stuff and ideas and like the latest thing and they learn from me and vice versa. Right. So I, I like that approach. I just have a couple more questions for you. The first one is, is this, I'd like to ask it in a somewhat weird or unconventional way. Okay. And it's surrounded around being a woman. Obviously, women are underrepresented in the tech community, especially even positions of leadership in the business world. And I feel like when I research you, for example, before we have this podcast and I come up with my question list, every single person that I have on the podcast, and it's pretty 50-50 between men and women that I interview on this podcast, whenever it's a woman, I have to ask the question about have you, what's your experience with women and entrepreneurship? And why is it so hard for women? And blah, blah, blah. And what's your perspective on this? 
And I was writing this question the other day with uh, my assistant. I was just like, why am I asking this question? Should we not be past it as a society? I'd love your opinion on that. Like, why are we not past it yet? And why is it still a topic that when you're getting interviewed, people feel that they have to ask? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. It's a very loaded one too. One that I think deserves its own separate episode. <laughs> Probably you're right. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's an important one. I mean, I, I do a lot of talks about the challenges that women face in, in entrepreneurship, particularly when it comes around raising capital. I mean, I've been witness to it as a woman of color, but across the board, the stats don't lie. I think the average deal size last year for female-led companies was 5 million, while the average deal size for male-led companies was 12 million. And I think the challenge is, especially when you're an underrepresented minority, we essentially get, when it comes to investors and VCs, we get boxed into one of two categories. Either we're in the um, I want to call it the diversity quota check category where mm. you're, you know, part of some minimal charity fund. Or the second criteria is where you lose the opportunity to somebody who looks more the part. We don't fall under uh, an entrepreneur or a VC or an angel investor's preconceived notion of what a typical entrepreneur should look and sound like. And because of the unconscious and implicit bias that's out there, I think that it has been extremely challenging for female founders, especially those of color, to raise capital, um, to have the networks, mentors, access to resources um, across the board. And I think another huge challenge is the fact that when I look at women in my network, I find, or just people in my network, not even women, I find the people that are so afraid of being promotional, opinionated, aggressive, assertive, are typically women. We don't take credit for ideas. We don't, we're scared of asking for that promotion. We're scared of asking for more money. And we don't advocate for ourselves. We do such a great job. And when I say we, I don't mean me. I clearly do advocate for myself. <laughs> I, um, I know if someone's watching this and they're like, are you kidding me? You're like the most promotional person I know. Yes, I am. I'm unapologetically promotional. And I think it's so <laughs> important because I think the system itself is flawed 100%, but I think we can counteract a lot of that by advocating for ourselves. And that is why one of my biggest advice for women specifically is work on your personal brand unapologetically promote yourself, take credit for your ideas. Everyone suffers from imposter syndrome, including myself. It's normal across the board, but try to tell yourself that nobody else has more right of, more or less of a right to be doing exactly what you're doing. The only difference is just going for it. And so um, it is sad that we're still asking these questions, but we should be asking these questions because the stats, the data, statistically across the board, we're still struggling to, to climb to the top. We're still struggling to get an equal seat at the table. And, you know, I don't think having leaders like Trump in power is helping our cause in any way. But I think that women need to also do a better job of sort of championing themselves and other women. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, because it, 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 that was my thing. Like, I was thinking, do I stop asking the question? Because personally, like, I grew up in uh, suburban, like, Toronto and Ontario here. Like, it's not maybe I'm oblivious to it because of my privilege and I'm aware of that maybe. Um, uh, but I, I feel like I shouldn't even be asking the question because it's an, it may be even be conceived as an insult to even have to bring it up. But at the same time, I'm like, well, the numbers are there. So I don't know. I, I give me your, give me your advice on that being a man. Like, do I keep asking the question or do I move past it? 
I mean, I don't take it as insulting. I would say that I am here not because I'm a woman, but because I'm qualified. And I agree. I think all of the challenges that we face to sort of get to the top in spite of being a woman or being a woman of color, I, you know, that's not my personal brand, being a woman or a woman of color. And that's not what I want my personal brand to be about. But I definitely want to have conversations around why it's so challenging for us to get a seat at the table, why we have to work twice as hard as a person next to us because of our, our gender. Um, and just, you know, it's not just about being a woman, you know, women of color, it's, you know, LGBTQ, there's underrepresentation across the board. And I think obviously Canada has, I moved here because I found Canada to be one of the few places in the world where you are rewarded based on your merit, regardless of, you know, your class system, your gender, the color of your skin. But we have a really long way to go, even though we're miles ahead of countries, our neighbors, as well as countries around the world and where I came from, you know, we definitely need to be having these conversations. And so I think maybe how you could phrase it is how can we be allies? How can we support you? But don't stop asking the question because until we do have an equal seat at the table, it's a conversation that we need to keep having. Amazing, thank you. All right, so I'll ask you the second last question here. We'll wrap up, be cognizant of time. Where could people find you online? Or where could people find you? I am a millennial. I am on all of the channels. You can find me on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, just Google me, you'll find me. Um, like I said, unapologetically work on my personal brand. So if you want to find me, it won't be hard. Uh, our website is quillet.io. Um, my personal handle is ADA Fatima. Our quill.inc is our um, social handle. So yeah, I mean, feel free to reach out to me directly. I'm happy to chat podcasting or personal branding anytime. And yeah, thank you for, for allowing me to make that plug. Oh, of course. Yeah. People always ask like, oh, how can I find this person? Right. Okay. Last question. I asked this to everybody. All right. And it's just a topic that my, uh, my cousin and I used to always talk about growing up because we take a lot of things for granted. Uh, meaning different people have different points of view on the world. Like for example, I start this phone up every morning and it just works. I go to my light switch <laughs> and I turn it on and electricity just comes in. And I have no clue how this phone works or how the electricity in my condo works, but it does work. So what I like to ask every guest on the show, because they do have a unique perspective and level of skill set and expertise, I like to ask, what's, what's one thing that you know that you wish other people knew more about? It's hard to pick just one, but I would say based on our earlier conversation where we talked about how being in sales is an emotional roller coaster. I would say my advice is when you are an entrepreneur and you're looking to hire either a salesperson or really any employee for your early stage company, find someone with true grit and hustle and resilience. Those skills matter way more than the fancy resume with bells and whistles. And that is not only a hard lesson that I have learned, but I'm here today because somebody took a chance on me. I didn't have the fancy resume with bells and whistles. English is not my first language. I didn't typically have all of the stereotypical things that you look for in a successful candidate, but someone still took a chance on me and I was able to sort of build that momentum. And so when you are recruiting or hiring or having that informational coffee, just sort of keep an open mind when you are looking to hire someone for your business. I like that. Uh, rugby coach of Mark and I <laughs> used to always say, uh, one because we were recruiting he used to always say bring me athletes that have uh heart and like determination because you can't teach that but you could teach rugby 
And he used to always tell us that for when you're recruiting. So it's the same thing when we hire people to be on our team, it's what's their personality like? What's their ambition? What's their principles and values? And then the rest you can kind of teach, right? Um, So I like that. That's a very important thing. Fatima, that is a wrap. Thank you kindly for being on the show. You're a beauty and it's been an absolute pleasure. Maybe we will have uh, another podcast set up between us in the future on a different topic, Um, but really appreciate you coming on today. It was a a good time. Thank you kindly for having me on your show. I really appreciate you thinking of me. I know that our team loves working with you and happy to support in any way that I can. Likewise. Likewise. For everyone listening out there, thank you for making it to the end. This is what they did not teach you in school. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Wise Investor. Until next time. This is what they did not teach you in school. We hope to see you soon.